All right. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the privilege of gathering together in this unique way as members of your family. Help us not take these opportunities for granted that we can gather freely in this beautiful place you've given us and learn your word together in unity, in unity of the faith and love. Father, we ask that you bless this message, that you guide the speaker, that you help all of us open our ears to hear what you have to say tonight, your special personal message for each one of us. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of the Spirit we pray. Amen. The difficult passages, believing, a review this evening. And may I remind you all that my main job here on Tuesday nights is basically to review uh, the last lesson or two and to add what the Spirit gives me in hopes of giving you all maybe a different perspective to maybe grasp, grasp something you didn't get the first time. So I suggest please remain humble as you see the word review on the board because we all know how the flesh reacts when we hear that word. Bill's laughing. Isn't it true, though? When we hear the word review, we, we go, Ugh. like, I need this. I mean, come on, he's calling me stupid. I mean, that's what the flesh is really saying. Like, I already know that. We're so, so arrogant. We're funny creatures. As though anybody who listened to Sunday's message could possibly say they absorbed it all. You'd be blessed to be able to say you got half of it, if you're honest. And so here we are. Take this review from the Spirit as something we all need. Be eager to learn in a review because, you know, it's almost guaranteed that you're going to hear something the second time that you heard the first time that you didn't get the first time. And you're going to go, oh, wow, that's great. Or I didn't even hear that on Sunday. So have the right attitude, be humble, and let's see what the Spirit wants us to grasp tonight. This brief series on the concept of believing in the Bible has shed more light on the importance of context when reading our Bibles. We've seen people in the Bible that have quote-unquote believed something, but apparently not the true gospel and apparently not from the heart. So really this is an eye-opener, I hope to all of you, it is to me, about the importance of context when reading our Bibles and that that's where we get truth from not hanging on one word and assuming we know that it means the same thing in every spot. We've seen several passages where a person quote-unquote believed but is called out as a pretender and his lifestyle reveals him as an unbeliever, even by the apostle's rebuke. So this again is why we can't cling to words or phrases in the Bible for our truth, but on context. That's the one thing we can cling to or hang on to is context. And as Pastor mentioned Sunday, the Spirit is leading him to teach us how to fish on our own, not to rely on a pastor for all of our fishing expeditions, so to speak. The Spirit also mentioned on Sunday the idea that your education is like building your own personal enterprise, that each of us is called 
to a personal mission from the Lord with our own gifts, and we've been empowered by the Spirit, we can walk forward and produce beautiful, bountiful fruit for the Lord, each and every one of us. Not only does Jesus say we are his friends if we do what he commands us, but he then calls us to do something with the appointment we've been given. And therefore, we have that concept of our own personal enterprise. The Lord has made it personal, both by sharing the details of the Father's plan and by calling, out, calling us out to our own personal service of him and his people, as we saw in John 15, 14 through 16. Go again to John 15, 14. Again, the Lord, by his grace, has made it personal, both by sharing the details of the Father's plan and by calling us out to our own personal service of Him and His people in some way, shape, or form. John fifteen fourteen, Jesus said, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. There's your own personal enterprise right there. He chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Can I go bear fruit for you? Can you go bear fruit for me? Every single one of us have a unique personal mission from the Lord that no one else can fulfill but you. You could waste it away. You could have regrets when you see the Lord. Or you could fulfill it and bear fruit that he's called you to. And that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So the Lord's giving us permission, if you will, to go out and produce fruit, while we rely on His Spirit, of course, and His Word. But He's like releasing us. He's saying, go, like like Pastor was saying on Sunday, go, go ahead, child, you know, go out and experience this. You know, I've trained you. Now go out and produce fruit. By grace, the Lord changes us and empowers us to go bear our own good fruit. And this reminded me of Ephesians 2.10 on the board. After he saves us by grace in verses 8 and 9, what does it say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Which God prepared beforehand. Look again at John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. He appointed you to something which he prepared beforehand. So think about this. We each have our own good works that he's designed us to walk forward in. Every single one of us, from the smartest to the simplest, you know, whatever your weaknesses and strengths are, your ability to speak and having no ability to speak. I was reading Exodus uh, the other day and how Moses 
didn't want to go because he said, I can't speak well. I don't know what to, I can't do this. I don't, I can't talk. And God actually at one point got very angry with him because he wasn't operating in faith. And then he gave him Aaron, his brother, to go do the speaking for him. I mean, how many of you, when you hear the word Moses, you know, you think of a powerful, great speaker. You think of a great leader. And God used a man who didn't have the confidence to speak his own words to lead a nation out of captivity. So we have example after example of how God has a plan and a way for every single one of us to bring him glory with our own personal enterprise. He's prepared the good works for us already. He's prepared the path, and he's already placed certain people in our lives, even the ones we haven't met yet. Just think about that. After all, God prepared these things beforehand, right? That we would walk in them, in Ephesians 2.10, including people that we haven't met yet. He's already placed them in our path. And if we walk forward by faith, we're going to encounter all these people. We're going to see there's no coincidences at all. And think about it. What, how would your life change if you viewed every person you bumped into as a preordained meeting? I mean every person you bumped into. Not just a quote-unquote divine appointment, a gospel discussion. What if every person you bumped into was preordained? Because it is literally bumped into someone on the street and you knocked their books over like back in the school days, right? Whatever. Is that an accident? Was that by chance? Or was that also preordained for some purpose? Every person in, on the road when you're driving and you're frustrated, someone driving slow in front of you or cut you off, that was preordained. For, for what reasons? I don't know. Maybe to get your attention. Maybe to get you praying maybe to show you that you don't have the self-control you thought you had, um, maybe to apologize to that person when they got out of the car. I don't know. But is anything accidental, really? It's all preordained, and it all involves good works that we can do outwardly or maybe good works that he's doing us in us inwardly. But we each have our own unique plan to fulfill. So think about, you know, You've heard this expression before, a million Jesuses walking around the world on, on earth acting as his hands and feet because that's what the obedient believer is. When we walk in these uh, works that God has planned or prepared before us or beforehand, that's what the positive believer is. He's being the hands and feet of Jesus. He's producing good fruit that Jesus himself would produce if he were here today. And by faith, we can do similar wonderful things. So on Sunday, we talked about the wonderful difference between slaves and friends. The immediate difference is that a slave simply does as he's told without any implied explanation. A friend receives intimate details as to why a person's doing what they're doing. The difference is intimacy. Jesus made his disciples his friends. I'm sure you've experienced that maybe even at work, where sometimes your boss will tell you to do, do something and won't give you any explanation. And it even bothers you. You're like, why am I doing this stupid thing? I don't see the purpose in it. 
But then another time, your boss will give you some work to do, and it will be like, here's why we're doing this. I'm going to let you in on this. Here's our purpose. Here's our goal. And it's a totally different relationship. And that's what Jesus has done for us, invited us into uh, intimacy, even into the Father's plan. He certainly didn't have to do that. It's not like we have a right to know or something. Paul wrote reminding us about the reality of God's sovereignty as well. Go to Romans 9, verse 20 again. So even though Jesus has made us or called us his friends and lets us in on God's plan and some of the intimate details, Paul reminds us of God's sovereignty. And then that this same God and King chooses to treat us as friends. Romans 9.20 On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does the potter, or does not the potter, have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? In other words, God has all the rights. You know, if you're a clay pot, you certainly wouldn't say anything to somebody who's molding you or shaping you. And only the potter has the ability to, uh, or has the rights. We'll just leave it at that. And so God, our creator, is absolute sovereignty. He's absolute sovereignty. He doesn't owe anybody an explanation. Yet he gives us a lot if we're hearing with the right ears. We're not to question his commands or his unique plan for our lives, including the things he sees fit for us to go through uh, uniquely and individually. We're not to question those things. If he wants to use us one way and use your friend a totally different way, we have no right to even think about questioning him. Of course, we do it out of the flesh, but we have no right to even think about questioning why he's given me a certain sickness or a certain cross to bear. Zero rights. So we must remember our place. The reality is that he's the creator and he didn't even have to let us be born. So rest on that. And yet this sovereign king and creator of all things has a gracious plan toward us and he operates in patience with us even though we kick against his sovereignty. It really is a, a supernatural patience, one that is not something we can comprehend. In Romans 9.22, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? It was God's right and only God's right to call us friends to choose to treat us in kindness and patience. He certainly didn't have to. So on the board, he calls us friends. Out of his sovereign grace, God has chosen to give intimate details about why he does the things he does although not always in great detail in our individual situations. Otherwise, there would be no need for faith, which brings him glory in front of the angels. 
But in the Word of God, He gives us plenty of revelation. He lets us in on plenty of the intimate details so that we know there's a purpose and a plan. And we have a lot of the details that Jesus Himself shared with us. So again, out of His sovereign grace, God has chosen to give intimate details about why He does the things He does. Although not always in great detail in our individual situations, otherwise there would be no need for faith, which brings God glory in front of the angels. But he does call us friends. Romans 9.23 And he did so. What did he do? He endured us with patience. He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. We saw this on Sunday as well. Even us whom he also called. This is a reference to friends of Jesus Christ. Allah John 15, 15. The Lord makes known certain intimate details about his own heart to those in his family. Romans 9, 23 and 24. He lets us in on a lot more than he ever had to let us in on. And this is one of the main reasons we need to keep reading our Bibles. Do you realize that God desires to reveal certain things to us personally? He desires to reveal more of his secrets to us, to let us in on more intimate details. He really desires that as our Father. We're the ones that get in the way, of course. But if we seek him, we will find him, right? The scripture says... He will share things with us. He wants us to know him more. If you've been reading your Bibles, you've noticed that very often the question you have in one chapter is answered in the very next chapter. Amen? It's almost uncanny how it happens like that over and over and over. Almost like it was planned. So why did God design it that way? Why did God inspire his word that way? Just put the dots together, right? On the board, keep reading your Bibles. Could it be that God only reveals himself to his friends? And if you're a true friend of God, you'll keep pursuing him? Could it be God only reveals himself to his friends? And if you are a true friend, you will pursue him. Just like the Lord said, he said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. How are, how are you a friend of God if you don't do what he commands you? How many times when you go through tough things in life, you say that's when you find out who your friends really are, right? And you thought you had 10 and you found out you had one. Why? Why don't you call the other nine friend anymore? Or maybe you do, but you don't really consider them true friends because they didn't act on your behalf. A true friend loves, right? A true friend is a friend, acts like a friend. And so do we expect God to reveal things to us when we don't do what we're commanded? When, he, when all the friendship's one-sided from him? So a true friend acts a certain way. Instead of just being an obedient slave to the king, 
we have the opportunity to accept his offer of friendship by caring about what he cares about, by caring about his word, his desires, his plan. Friendship is a two-way street, and he more than broke the ice for all of us already. So a friend of God will seek to know more about his Lord. And so the Lord rewards those who diligently seek him because that's a true friend. Someone that actually wants to get to know you instead of just get stuff from you. Imagine how God feels. When we read our Bibles in context, the answers are given to those who persist. That's not a coincidence. When we read our Bibles in context, the answers are given to those who persist, to those who don't give up, but keep seeking the answer in the next chapter. So whatever you do on the board, just keep reading your Bibles. Keep seeking in that way. And it, it doesn't matter your intelligence. It doesn't matter your ability to read. It doesn't matter any of that stuff. By you pursuing him like this as a friend would to get to know him, he will reveal things to you. Could it be that God only reveals himself to his friends? And if you're a true friend of God, you'll keep pursuing him. You'll do what he commands you. So that is the mindset of a friend. And the Lord has given us that opportunity to have unique, intimate relationship with him. For example, wisdom says in Proverbs 8:17, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. The Bible also tells us a friend loves at all times. God has chosen to love us at all times, despite our failures. So what's the deal? Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. That was Jesus, who left heaven and was born as our brother for the ultimate adversity. And so do we ignore the love of our friend, or do we respond as John said, we love him because he first loved us. It's easy to love someone that's already proven their love to you. And so we have an opportunity. He calls us friends. He says, if you keep my commands, you are my friends. You are my true friends. And back to reading our own Bibles as a source of seeking and finding. So intimacy is only revealed to those who seek him, to those who act as his friends. And this is made possible to all men, by the way. Anyone can decide to do his own fishing by reading his own Bible in context in search of him, the person. And if someone can't read, he can have someone read to him. And he can listen to the Bible on audio in our day and age through technology. God will provide a way for those that want to know his heart and be his friend. Isn't it funny when you really want something, how you seek a way to make it work? 
you don't quit on something. I hate to say it, but the best example is money. If, if, if you know there's $100,000 there waiting for you, if you find a way to get there, if you find a way to sell a certain amount of product or you find a way to build a, an invention and that someone promises you $100,000, you will find a way. It's so true. And so we, are, we have treasure in heaven, which is way beyond gold and silver, beyond our imaginations. And yet we don't seek him with that same tenacity and desire that we seek money. It's an amazing condition we're in. But you keep reading your Bibles, and you see how God does the work in you and changes your soul, and even builds your desire to get to know him more, and, and clues you in on more intimate details, so that you really are a friend of his, not just one way. So his word and spirit are available to all mankind, but only those who truly believe take advantage of the offer of his friendship. And as we've learned in this short series, some people can actually read their Bibles but not personally accept what it says. They don't believe because they don't trust in the person of Jesus Christ as their King and Lord and Savior. They don't personally trust him. On the board, I think this is such an important uh, issue regarding everything we've been studying, uh, especially regarding the gospel and salvation. A matter of trust. A matter of trust. Why won't some people that believe that parachutes work actually jump out of a plane? The answer is trust. A person can believe something to be true, possibly, be, possibly even for others, but still not trust in it for their own salvation. Some people simply won't trust in the Lord because they don't have ears to hear. They'll gather the facts. They'll say, I know the Bible says he's Lord, but I don't know. Who knows what lies Satan is working in their souls to you know, snatch away the truth from their heart, as the parable says. But people's pride gets in the way. They're not humble to receive the things of God. So they don't trust them, even if they quote-unquote know the facts. So as we go out and share the gospel, looking for those who will hear, we must find out what people believe and what people are currently falsely clinging to. That's been the emphasis the last couple lessons on the board Evangelism 101. The question we ought to be asking people is, what do you believe in? Not merely do you believe. Most professing Christians will answer yes to the second question. However, they're confused, misinformed, even willfully rebellious regarding Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The issue is trust. Trust versus knowledge only. That is what needs to be discussed with people that are willing to listen. Do you trust him? That's the issue. Do you personally realize or put your life in his hands? Or do you just say you know Jesus and you hope he saves you? And you hope it's all true? So it's not do you believe in Jesus, but first 
who do you believe Jesus is? Because there's many different Jesuses out there. M many different opinions of Jesus out there. And that's where you have to get to the root of. We have to dig it up in their soul and say, but who do you think he is? Uh, I know you say you believe in Jesus, but who do you think he is? You know, do you have to do it in a, a confrontational way. Do it in a conversational way. Like, so I'm curious, who do you think Jesus is? And let them tell you. And, and unfortunately, probably half the time, you're not going to get the answer of him being God and Savior. But now at least you know the, the root of the problem, or if there is a problem. That is a key question being missed in today's modern evangelism. Who do you believe Jesus is? With all the lies out there about who he is, even subtle issues in people's hearts have led them astray. And often those were received from weak pulpits that don't stick to the word of God. The slippery serpent, Satan, has been performing his evil even in churches. And what does Satan use? Misdirection. Satan's done a masterful job of sowing misdirection, even from pulpits, resulting in folks asking the wrong questions. The question we ought to be asking folks is, what do you believe? Not do you believe. The focus of contemporary Christianity is wrong. For example, if you were to die tonight, where are you going and why? In other words, what do you believe? Before I tell you what I think you need to hear, what do you believe? If you were to die tonight, where do you think you're going and why? Why not, if given the chance, first see what others really believe rather than assuming anything and giving people the same cookie-cutter message about Jesus. When you discover what somebody already believes about Jesus and who he is, you can then share the needed truth, and that will often be regarding Jesus as both Lord and Savior. That's the message the Spirit's been telling us, and even out there witnessing, you know, spreading the gospel out in different places. That's what we see quite a bit. The Lord part is lacking. People don't realize who he really is. As we've been learning, one of the greatest problems in today's Christianity is the attack on the Lordship of Christ. We know that if people will just read their Bibles, they'll abundantly see Jesus preached as the Lord. Of course, the problem is most people don't read their Bibles. And so they assume what's in the Bible. Or they take one passage that's a favorite and... Apply that to everything. And they don't know passages like this on the board that declare Jesus as Lord. In 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Acts 16, 31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. That's who he is. And there are many other verses. We could go on and on, but that's for your own fishing expedition. Maybe look, look for that as you continue to read your Bibles. But the Lordship of Jesus in our day and age needs to be boldly shared and explained. We know from the Scriptures 
that Jesus was not just a man or just a prophet, but the Lord God in the flesh. And that changes everything for the person who will hear. Some won't hear. Some won't listen. They'll immediately put up a wall when you start discussing this and making an issue out of it. And that's fine. They're not ready. But for those that will listen, this is what will change their life. And we need to let them know any other belief that Jesus is less than the Lord himself is believing in another Jesus. And that is not effective for salvation. I hope you see the main issue that's floundering in people's hearts. It's a misconception of Jesus. What say you about Jesus? I mean, the Lord himself challenged the apostles even. Who do you say I am? There's the issue. Not do you believe in me? Who do you think I am? And he said that three times in three different Gospels. Matthew 16, 15 was one of them. Who do you say I am? Many people don't know who Jesus really is. And finding out what others believe about him first might just open the door to their hearts. So again, what do you believe? What do you believe about Jesus? Who do you think he is? And so every man is challenged, is Jesus Lord in your heart? Or is he just a good man holding out a get-out-of-jail-free card? A huge difference. And that's a primary issue in salvation itself. So on the board, the narrow gate and way, true believing in Jesus Christ carries with it trust in Him as Lord and Savior. That trust never leaves a saved person, which is why under the most extreme temptation, He has never lost one. And why is that? Because God changes the person. A saved person is a changed person. God is inside of them now. They've been given a new heart, and that can't fail. The new nature, the new creature can't fail. And so we have true believing in Jesus Christ, carrying with it trust in Him as Lord and Savior. We've also seen this past week regarding the concept of believing, the wide gate and broad way. It's possible to believe, quote-unquote, in Jesus, his good name, his works, his resurrection even, and not be saved for one reason. If that person has not personally accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, there's a trust issue based on humility a counting the cost that precedes saving faith. If, if we should understand anything by now, with all we've been taught recently, it's a personal trust in the person of Christ that saves a person. It's not an acquiescence to facts about him. You might hear someone say, uh, in not so many words, okay, I acquiesce, I give in. I give in to that he is who you say he is. Is that person saved, you think? Are they conceding something? 
for whatever reason, maybe to not have uh, you know, a challenge, an argument, I don't know. Does that kind of a statement sound like it's from the heart? Like somebody surrendering to the Lord for salvation. That's a lot different than someone who repents of their sinfulness and turns to Christ as their own Lord and Savior. I hope you've seen the difference. Like, it comes back to heart issues. On the board, the wide gate and broad way, it's a mental ascent versus trusting in the Lord. Two hugely different things, even though the same words might come out of somebody's mouth about Jesus. It's knowing facts versus submitting to the Lord. Do you see the personal nature of salvation and how it's only a humble heart that receives grace? It's only someone with that attitude of trust and submission towards his person that admits they're nothing, that repents, that's going to receive his grace in salvation. I believe most of you do see it by now. And as we press on in God's word, he continues to give us the same message in different ways so that it becomes a part of us and who we are in Christ. You know, I was thinking about this earlier today. I was trying to picture it, but God is, is building, building and building in your soul. He's adding to it. He's adding to it. Even when you don't retain Sunday's message, okay? If you can't recall certain points or, you know, remember all you think you should remember. God's doing something in you and he's building up this ammunition in your soul. And it is accruing. It is, it is um, building into something that is very real for you to access when it's needed. Not just knowledge-wise, I'm talking power-wise even, to pass tests, etc., you're being changed. We're constantly being changed because we're submitting right now, for example, to his word. And it's a supernatural thing the Holy Spirit is doing in each one of us. So keep that in mind and don't get discouraged. He's giving us the same message in different ways so that it becomes a part of us and who we are in Christ. It just is becoming who you are as a person. And the humble person who turns to God in their brokenness will receive the fullness of God's grace and that which accomplished salvation on their behalf. We talked about on Sunday efficacious grace. Grace is perfect. It never fails. It saves and sanctifies. It saves and subjects. It makes new. It changes. Its recipients bear fruit, they persist, they endure, they overcome, they submit and obey. Efficacious means effective and able to produce a desired result. If God's grace acts upon you because you humbly have turned to Christ in, in, in faith, and God's grace takes over you at that moment, it can't fail. It's perfect and powerful. And that's what he does to a believer. So on the board, either you believe that or you don't. Either you believe that God is able or you don't. 
If you believe that he can save you, but his grace doesn't include a complete inward born-again result, then you're believing the wrong gospel. God finishes what he starts. The true believer accepts his grace and all that it will do in him. But some people won't humbly submit. They'll mentally assent. They'll consider the facts and give you the right answer as well. But they won't humbly submit. Some people out there, and we see this out there too, you know, out there sharing the gospel with people, they just believe in Jesus as an ideology. I like his principles. He, he was a wise man. Many people think he's just a good man to emulate, you know, because he said things like, love your neighbor as yourself. Have you ever met someone that says, I live by that? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Treat others as you want them to treat you. They don't even know it came from Jesus, many of them, 2,000 years ago. But if they do, they may be just attributed to him being a good man, and he's their ideology. He's their way of thinking, and they're really smart because of it. But they don't give him the credit he's due. People love to take what they like, that he said, but ignore what he said about other things, including the fact that he's Lord. They certainly like to ignore admitting he's Lord so they don't have to obey all that he said. And so this person doesn't believe in the true Jesus of the Bible. On the board, a little bit more about efficacious grace. This came out on Sunday, too. God will never impart saving faith to a person that believes in a different Jesus, only to someone who believes in his Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who overcame death itself. So in reality, here's what we've seen in the scriptures and in real life, too the wide gate and Broadway. It's possible to say Jesus is the Son of God or Jesus is Savior or even Jesus is Lord and not be saved because a human heart can, after believing these things to be true, still not accept or trust Him as personal Lord and Savior. That heart may still say, yes, these things are true, but He's not my Lord and Savior. Have you ever heard somebody say, I'm not ready for that yet, when you give them the gospel? Or you talk about the rapture even more? I'm not ready for that yet. I can't, I can't go there yet. I'm not ready to commit to him. I've got my life to live first. Have you ever heard that one? I mean, you're telling people the way to eternal life and that Jesus is really God in the flesh and that he rose from the grave. He paid the penalty for all their sins, 100%. And they basically say, nah, I'm not ready yet. I've got my own life to live. If that person half-heartedly accepted Jesus, they're not saved. They're saying, I've got my own life to live. You just said, I don't really believe what you said. Even though I'll consent to the facts, maybe they're true. But you just said, I don't really believe it. I've got my own life to live. Is that why Jesus said whoever does not lose his life cannot find it? Is that why Jesus said, deny yourself 
pick up your cross and follow me? As pictures of salvation even? Because this person who says they believe in Jesus, but says, I'm not ready to commit to him, I've, I've got my life to live first. That is another Jesus they believe in. A person can say he's Lord and not accept him as their own Lord. Their soul isn't humble yet, in other words, and it's too close for comfort for them. I don't want my little life disturbed yet. I still have more progress I think I can make on my own for my life, for my advancement, for my prosperity. Just like the demons who know who Jesus is but continue to reject him as their Lord and Savior. On the board, we saw Matthew 5, 7. And shouting with a loud voice, the demon-possessed man said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High, God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. Salvation is a heart issue. And it's a trust issue. It includes a person accepting Jesus as one, one's own Lord and King and Savior, of course. But it's either made personal or it's not. Go again to Romans 10.9, which has quickly become one of my favorite verses regarding saving faith. Romans 10.9. Salvation is a hard issue. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. As we've seen in the last couple of lessons, here's the conclusion. Why has the concept of believing become quote-unquote difficult? It's because people have perverted the concept of grace. When God presents his son, he presents all of him. When he gives his son, he gives all of him. This is the fullness of grace. John 1, 16 and 17. Go to John 1, 16 again. Again, it's back to who do you say that I am? Who do you believe Jesus is? John 1, 16. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. On the board, grace upon grace means that God showers believers with grace Saving them implies saving them from sin. As Spurgeon said, if it were possible for sin to be forgiven, and yet for the sinner to live just as he lived before, he would not really be saved. In other words, there's a difference between a person who believes that God is able to swoop them to heaven and a person who understands and believes that his intention is to deliver them not just from hell, but from sin itself. That's what we need to be delivered or rescued from, sin. 
And that's what God's grace does in the true believer. That's the need for his grace to accomplish the impossible in our lives. What's impossible? Turning from sin. That's impossible for us to do on our own. But in humility, as we turn to him and submit to him as Lord and Savior, his grace changes us and gives us even a new nature that cannot fail. So he truly rescues the believer from sin and death. And his grace has the power to do so for those that trust in him from the heart. So we got about 10 minutes left. Let's review the one other passage that came up regarding the concept of believing in Acts chapter 8. Go to Acts 8, 1. And here we see another example of spurious faith or faith in the wrong things. So we're just going to read through this again. We'll stop and, and highlight some things. Acts 8, 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So think about what Paul believed at this point, as we talked about on Sunday. He believed in another Jesus, another Messiah. He really did believe. His faith was so strong, he killed people. But he believed in another Jesus, and he wasn't saved at this point. And I think that's similar to how people believe in a different, accommodating Jesus today, one of their own liking, rather than the biblical Jesus. Look at verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And so there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, continued on with Philip. And he was, uh, as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. 
Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So Simon, as we saw on Sunday, became so famous for this account that there's actually a word named after him, <clears throat> simony, which means the act of selling church offices and roles. The term also extends to other forms of trafficking for money in spiritual things. The practice is named after Simon Magus, as we're reading right now. So there we are in verse 19. Simon says, Give this authority to me as well, so that, I, that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. The Apostle Peter challenges the faith of this man, Simon, because of the ugly fruit he sees. Better to challenge someone now while they still have the chance to repent than to wait until life is over and then the judgment. And so Peter was very truthful with this man and with what he saw. He didn't sugarcoat it. On the board, even though Simon supposedly believed, quote-unquote, Peter rebuked him and made him sound like an unbeliever. He said, may your silver perish with you. No believer will ever perish, according to John 3.16. You have no part or portion in this matter, he said, basically calling him a phony. How about this one? Your heart is not right before God. We've been seeing the heart issues in salvation. You have an unbeliever's heart. And you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. This is never true of a believer. So in verse 13, it says Simon, quote-unquote, believed, right? But as we've seen in Scripture now, through this mini-series, Jesus even taught in the parable of the soils, not everyone who believes for a time is saved or believes the right things when they believe. There's such a thing revealed in the Bible as temporary belief, which is not the believing that results in God-given faith that saves. And that's just how it is when you look at the context. So as we close, and as the Spirit mentioned on Sunday, believing something does not mean a person's heart has submitted yet. We'll close with these last two points regarding believing. A person can believe something is true about Jesus, but still not trust in Christ for their own eternal life. I hope you see that difference. Again, it's back to trust. It's back to surrender or submission as a part of true faith. A person can believe something is true about Jesus, but still not trust in Christ for their own eternal life. And finally, true believing or trusting Christ results in a heart change. And that results in a life change. 
of some kind. Why? Because it's by the power and effectiveness of the grace of God in the believer's life. These divinely good results are inevitable. If someone is a new creature, if Christ is now living inside of them, the results are inevitable. God's grace doesn't fall short. True believing or trusting Christ results in a heart change, and that results in a life change because it's by the power and effectiveness of the grace of God in the believer's life. These divinely good results are inevitable. So I'll close up our review. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you again for revealing to us more things in your word, more of the intimate details, more of the things we discover as we read your word in context. And we thank you for opening up our hearts and minds, for not keeping you in a box, for not clinging to words and assuming what they mean. But we thank you for your word that's given to us in context for all of us to search and enjoy and discover. And we ask, Father, that you help us persist in seeking after you. Help us be a good friend, as we know you've already been a ridiculous friend to us that we don't deserve. But help us be your friend in return and help us love you back because you first loved us. Father, please bless us all as we go and help us bring these truths out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, and by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen.